You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Welcome. Glad you guys are here. So here's a question. Just throw it out there for you and I'll let you deal with it. What if they knew? What if they really knew you? What if they knew the truth, the stuff that we push way back there, the stuff we work so hard to keep hidden? What if they really knew? Would they love you? Would they leave you? Would they accept you or would they reject you? Think on that for just a moment. I'm not sure if you've been tracking with us here these last few weeks through this uh, teaching series called Stuck. We talked about anxiety in week one. Anxiety is really future set, isn't it? I'm, I'm concerned about something over the hill that I don't see yet, something that might happen that I don't know, but it could happen. That's, that's anxiety. It's very future set. Last week we talked about fear. Fear is something that's very present set. There's something in my life right now in front of my face that I'm worried about and I'm paralyzed by it. Well, this week we are talking about shame. Shame's a little bit different. Shame is in the past tense. Shame is the thing that is lurking kind of in the shadows of my story. It's the stuff that's just kind of behind the scenes that we're kind of afraid, like, man, what, what, what if that stuff back there that I wish didn't exist, what if all that came out into the light? What if? Something back there that is immobilizing me for something right now. So I'm um, not sure if you, uh, you track with this, but earlier this year we did a, a teaching series called Not Today, Satan, where we talked about the power of spiritual warfare. And um, I believe that we do have a very real enemy, and he's very smart. And um, he knows, like, the chinks in all of our armor. I don't want to get spooky or overstate that, but Satan knows the poison that he wants to feed you. He knows what it is. And just to be clear for me this morning, um, anxiety really for me personally, that, that's not my thing. I, I tend to not worry too much about the future. Um, I'm a little bit too concerned with the present. So like, I, don't, I don't worry about what's over the hill too much. That's just me. Um, fear in the moment, that's, that's not really my thing either. Like I'm, I'm usually okay. I, I tend to get through the day all right. But for me, just to be clear this morning and to lower the wall a little bit, shame, this is, this is kind of my thing. And um, this is the poison that the enemy wants me to drink. And uh, so it's a very powerful thing. More than anxiety or fear for me. The enemy leverages past failures to prevent future acceptance. And that's what shame is. And so I'm going to give you that definition again for you who are taking notes or whatever. Here you go. Shame leverages my failures to prevent my acceptance. And so if you feel a little bit of that, you need to know that that is very close to Jesus' heart because people are close to Jesus' heart. And so by way of introduction, I want to show you a picture in just a minute. Um, this picture that we're going to show you is, is a painting, and um, it's particularly powerful to me. And go ahead and show the picture. See if you guys can guess what this is. This is a, a picture that was painted by Rembrandt in 1669, and he's talking about a parable, one of the story teachings of Jesus. Anybody guess what, what parable this might be? The parable of the 
prodigal son. A couple of you got it. There it is. What a beautiful picture. Leave that up there for just a moment if we can. I'm normally not one for giving sermons clever, catchy little subtitles, but if I had to, for this one, might be the pathway from the pigsty to peace. Because we all kind of want peace, I think, but we're all sort of stuck sometimes in the pigsty. And that's what shame feels like. It's like wallowing in this self-made pigsty. I'm stuck. I'm immobilized. I'm unable to get where I'm supposed to be. I'm unable to enjoy what God wants for me. I'm unable to believe what I hope is true. I'm, I'm stuck recalling the past, replaying the tapes, regretting the choices. For some reason, unable to let go, just stuck, right? So if you feel that way sometimes, this morning is going to be for you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is a story that unfolds in four scenes, four scenes that weave together shame and grace in this beautiful picture of our Heavenly Father. So a bit of context before we get there. Um, There's four Gospels. Most of you know that. But the New Testament has four Gospels, and they each kind of have their own flavor a little bit. They each kind of cast Jesus in their own light. Luke actually tells more parables, or Jesus tells more parables in Luke than in any other Gospel. In Luke, Jesus spends more time with people than he does in any other gospel, and most of those people are outcasts. They're they're people who know they've got stuff. They're the down and out. And so we see Jesus in these really vulnerable, humanizing places in Luke. If Luke had a subtitle, it might be Jesus, God's love for the unlovable. That's Luke. It's how he wants to talk about Jesus. And so Luke 15 actually finds Jesus in this really interesting point in his life. Um, I'm going to read the first two verses. Just listen to these first two verses, and then we'll get to the text in a minute. Here's how Luke sets this up. This is Luke 15, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. These are the bad guys, right? Nobody wants to look at these people. And the Pharisees and scribes, these are the super religious, like, Man, these guys got their stuff in a pile. Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You can picture that, right? This little passive-aggressive side talk, these whispered conversations kind of to themselves. Jesus can't possibly be God. Look who he eats with. We know what these people have done. We know their past. If he was God, he wouldn't hang out with them. You hear the shame just kind of start to bubble up a little bit in there. So because Jesus knows what they're thinking and he knows what they're whispering about, Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15. First, he tells the parable of the lost sheep. Second, the lost coin. And then thirdly, the prodigal son. Now, here's what you need to know. All three of those parables are the exact same parable. They're all teaching the exact same lesson. They're all asking and answering the exact same problem. And so to make things clear, here's the question. Does God love people who don't deserve it? All three of those parables ask that same question. That's a really good question because we're all there at some point in our lives, right? Like, I'm there. Will God ever give up on me? Can he? How does God view me when I blow it again? Does God run out of grace? Does God love the lost? How far? All three of those parables ask and answer the same question. The first two are the easy ones. Those are the simple ones. But the third parable, this parable of the prodigal son, this is the most elaborate and the most powerful. Here's what Jesus says in response to the sideline grumbling. Scene one. Take a look in verse 11. 
Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Powerful picture. Three things I want us to see. First, we've got to know what he's asking here. This isn't, Dad, I need some money. This isn't, Dad, like, do me a solid. I want to go out and have a good time. Like, can you spot me a 20? It's not what he's asking here. Those are very tame compared to what he's asking for. In Jesus' day, just like today, asking for your inheritance while your parents are still alive It's a big no-no. Why? Because he's basically saying this. He says, Dad, the only use I have for you is what I can take from you, and the only thing I want from you is what gets me away from you. I've got it coming. Give it to me and give it to me now. And so this son asking his dad for money is basically like saying, Dad, it'd be better for me if you were already dead. Ouch. Second thing I want us to see, several days go by. Did you catch that? It's right there in the text. After several days, we don't know how long, but there was this window of time where the son was packing up and getting ready to roll out of town. We don't know how long this really took, but with money in his pocket, hopes for a good time, he was in a little bit of a hurry. Third detail, the pigs. (laughs) Now, this is the most poignant detail that Jesus could have chosen to incorporate in this story. Pigs are gross, right? And then we use this even today, right? If I say, like, oh, my gosh, you're a pig. <laughs> Go take a shower. You smell like a pig. Your room looks like a... Every parent in here is like, yeah, I've said that. <laughs> we use that as leverage because we're trying to get our point across. But in Jesus' day, this is way more than just that. Help me out here. Is Jesus talking to Gentiles or Jews? Jews, okay? In a Jewish culture, are pigs clean or unclean? Unclean. Okay, so he's making a very intentional point. Not only is this son insulting to his father, unwise in his actions, but he's actually offensive to Almighty God. And it gets so bad that at the end of this scene, the son is sitting there in a pigsty looking for leftover pig food. The only way you can imagine that today is if like, you went out of McDonald's like saw the trash can that was sitting there and you lifted up the lid and you're like, oh great, some leftover milkshake that stuck to the bottom of the lid and you licked that and said, that's my dessert. Like, that's gross. That's what this is like. The ultimate unclean. But then the light clicks on. (laughs) Scene two. Take a look in verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is his little speech. Jesus does something amazing here. He gives us insight into the mind of the son, and in so doing, he actually vocalizes shame. 
This is what shame sounds like. This is really hard, but really beautiful and really necessary. Jesus gives shame a voice. And tell me if you haven't said something like this to yourself at some point in your life, maybe even quietly, nobody else heard you, saying something like that, go, I am worthless. I've blown it too many times. I don't deserve love of the Father. How could God ever love me? Treat me like I deserve, God. It's only fair. So let's pull this apart. This is the son rehearsing a speech, and there are three parts to it. Part one is confession. Here's what I've done. That's part one. Part two is the implication. Here's what this now means. Part three is the condemnation. Here's what you must do. You see that? It's right there in the text. Take a look at it, especially if you've got a hard copy of God's word. It's all right there in verse 18 and 19. Confession, implication, condemnation. First part is confession. Here's what I've done. He goes, I've sinned. I'm wrong. I've broken your law. I've broken your heart. Here's the fascinating thing. He's correct. Those are all viable statements. Those are accurate. Yes, those things happened. I did those things. Part two, implication. Here's what this means. He says, I'm not worthy of your love. I can't be here. I'm out here. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm through. That's part two. Part three is his condemnation. Now, this is the hardest part. He says, here's what you must now do. My actions and my decisions have forced your hand, and I know what must now happen. Do it. Punish me. And most of us, right, reading this with a lifetime of, like, baggage and emotional stuff that we've got behind our life, hiding behind our Sunday smiles somewhere, we read that and we go, yeah, what goes around comes around, dude. Actions have consequences. You get what you pay for, right? You do the crime, you do the time. Makes sense. And that's where shame wants you to stay. Here's the point. Shame failures to prevent future acceptance. Shame is past tense, okay? Shame sounds like this, or at least this is how it starts. Shame goes, remember that thing you did? That was terrible. That thing back there that you wish you could forget, remember how terrible that was? Shame starts there, and then shame pushes further into identity. Starts with the action, and then goes into the identity. Hey, remember that thing you did back there that was terrible? Do you know why you did that? Because you're terrible. That thing back there that was not worthy of anything, do you know why you did that? Because you're not worthy of anything. Shame starts with an action and then pushes into identity. And it's right here in the son's words. It's deep, it's dark, it's powerful, but praise God, it doesn't get the final word. <laughs> and so Jesus makes it so we cannot miss the beauty of what comes next because something amazing is about to happen. But actually, before we get there, there's a question that I want to ask at this point in the parable. If I had been in the crowd and listening to Jesus teaching, I'd raise my hand and go, like, wait, 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 question. Because here's the question. What is it about the Father that allows the son to imagine that home is a safe place. Where did that idea come from? This son spit in his father's face, basically. What was it about the father that allowed the son to go, I should go home? 
what was it about him? What did the father do in those days when the son asked for his money? Did the father throw it in his face and say, fine, get out of here? No. When the, father, when the son basically said, you're dead to me, did the father go, fine, good, you're dead to me too, see ya? What was it? What did the father do that allowed the son to turn his heart from where he was to where he imagined and dreamed and hoped that he actually could be? Think on that. There's probably a parenting insight in there, isn't there? Scene 3, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, stop, like, isn't that great? While he was still a long way off, it's like the father was looking for him. While he was still, I think in the driveway, maybe not even in the same neighborhood. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you notice the string of the father's verbs there? Like, look at what all the father does. Anybody else thankful that we have a heavenly father who takes initiative? And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. For this son was dead, or for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Gosh, what a beautiful picture. Can you imagine like Jesus' original hearers? They're like, oh man, I wonder what this father's going to do. Like he's going to bend him over his knee. He's going to let him have it. He's going to go, don't you know what you made me feel like, you stupid son? No. The son speaks up. The son begins this rehearsed speech, ready to whip himself and pronounce his own condemnation. But then here comes grace. Like grace just like crash lands and interrupts the whole thing. And the father goes, you said enough, my turn to speak. You caught that, right? Like the father or the son doesn't even have time to complete the whole speech. Look at it. It's right there in the text. This self-hatred, self-condemnation, self-loathing is interrupted. Right there in verse 21, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Part one. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Part two. But the father said. That's very important. The son gets through condemnation. Not really. His father interrupts him before he gets there. Almost before he he puts his hand over his mouth, the father will not let him condemn himself. You caught that little detail, I hope. That's a very important detail that most of us miss, but we have to see. Before he can tell his father how to treat him, the father interrupts. And Grace just says, welcome home. It's like the father says, you don't get to decide. You don't get to define our relationship. That's for me to decide. I'll treat you how I want to treat you. And if I say you're welcome at my table, then you have a seat at my table. If I want to give you my best robe, then you will have my best robe. If I want to lavish my love on you, I'm going to do it. And there's nothing that you can do to stop it. Here's a ring for your finger, shoes for your feet, and food for your shame-sickened soul. Welcome home. Grace says you don't get to decide how this goes. And that's almost offensive, isn't it? Because, like, there's part of you that wants to go, like, well, let me grovel and wallow a little bit more, you know? And God says, no. 
Grace plays by its own rules. And here's where grace dismisses shame like a cramped muscle. Shame wants me to focus on what I have done. Grace wants me to focus on who my father is. You see the difference? Shame wants me to focus on everything that I have done. Grace wants me to focus on everything my father is. The entire focus changes. Shame is all about me. Grace is all about him. And because the father has the last word, the party starts. But there's a fourth and final scene in this parable, and it's the one that most of us leave out because we'd rather stop there. (laughs) There's like this horizontal, communal, churchy kind of spot where we got to go. Because if Jesus just stopped there, we'd still be good. Like, we'd still have the gospel. We'd still have this picture of a great, loving, holy God who forgives sin. Wow. But he doesn't stop there. Scene four. Remember, before we get there, though, remember the context. Jesus is telling this parable in answer to an accusation from a group of religious snobs. Remember, they've said, Jesus eats with sinners. He can't be God. God is about unquestioned holiness, and these people are not it. Jesus, being a masterful storyteller, expands the parable to include a very biting and very beautiful indictment. Verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out. Interesting again, he's taking the initiative. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Like, you didn't even throw me a pizza party, and this dude gets filet mignon. Come on. But when this son of yours, interesting, he didn't say this brother of mine. He goes, your problem. When this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fed and calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, interesting, this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and he was found. What's Jesus' implication? You think God loves you because of what you've done? You think God's super proud of you because you towed the company line? You looked at your resume smile smugly. You think God's impressed with you? You want to rest and take stock in your spiritual accomplishments? Great, enjoy that. You don't know God. You're resting on your spotless reputation? Great, you've never heard the Father's heart. You sit back and think and reflect how holy you are, how small your God must be. To the religious elite questioning Jesus, this group of super spiritual fools who Jesus would later call whitewashed tombs, like perfect on the outside, bitter on the inside, Jesus' not-so-subtle implication is God does not need you to be his lawyer defending his honor 
to people who don't deserve it. God needs you to be his son, celebrating his love for people who are desperate for it. Here's how this connects to shame. And maybe this is your experience. Sometimes Christians who should know better sound more like the older brother than the father. Sometimes Christians, including ourselves, our own voices, speak more shame more readily than grace. Sometimes Christians shoot the wounded, and I have to wonder how many prodigals never get out of the pigsty because the older son gets there first. Wallowing in a pigsty, they wonder, home may be safe, and the father may be good, but if those who lived there sound so different from how I imagine the father to be, and if those who live there sound like that, then maybe I'll just stay here. But still the father watches. He's always eager. Always has a welcome mat at the door, ready to run down the road. Let's put that painting back up again if we can. Show that painting. And I want you to see this painting in light of, of what we just talked about. Here's, here's what I love about this painting. I love the son's posture. I love how exhausted he looks. He just like collapses into his father. Isn't that how we feel sometimes? Just like, oh. He just buries himself into his father's heart. Also, I love how, how quiet and solemn this is. There's no violence here. There's no bitterness. We know there's a party coming, but that's later. There's almost like this warm solemnity to it. I love how the light even seems to come from the Father's face. That's interesting to me. But this isn't art history class, and I'm not here to exegete a painting. Here's what I really want us to see. This is a picture of what shame wants to prevent. This is a picture of what shame wants to prevent in our lives. And I mentioned this a bit ago. I'll say it again. Shame leverages my failures to prevent my acceptance. Shame wants the son to stay in the pigsty, believing that the father can't possibly love him. Shame wants to maximize your mistakes and minimize Jesus' victory. So how do we get here? Or maybe more importantly, how do we stay here, right? So I told you this can kind of be my thing, shame. This is kind of my poison, so to speak. Uh, this is how the enemy gets to me. And so um, if that's you, like if we're playing in a key that resonates with you this morning, um, I want to spend the next few minutes battle shame. I'm not perfect at it. I don't even know that I'm really good at it. But for me, like this are just tools that I use. This is how I get unstuck. And so if you're like me and you look over the shoulder of your past and you go, gosh, I just wish that stuff wasn't even back there, Here's what we want to do. I want to give you three skills to silence shame. And I call them skills because remember this light switch dimmer metaphor we've been playing with the last couple of weeks. Like, this is not an immediate thing. This is, this is a skill. This is work. This is hard to do. And it takes time. And there's more, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you these three. So skill number one, learn the difference between God's voice and the enemy's voice. This is a skill that we've got to learn how to do if we're going to silence shame. Probably one of my favorite on the subject of shame right now is a woman named Lori Krieg. Uh, Lori and her husband Matt 
uh, have a podcast called The Hole in My Heart Podcast, which I wholeheartedly recommend. There, see, we're talking about shame. You got to like bring a couple puns up. No? These are the pun jokes. All right, here we go. So, in a recent episode, they talk about three different types of shame. Three different types of shame. And I found this tremendously helpful. Here you go. First type of shame is what we'll call toxic shame. Toxic shame. And toxic shame sounds like I'm worthless. There is nothing redeemable in me. I'm too far gone. I'm too messed up. I'm too broken. I am beyond redemption. Toxic shame happens before, during, and after I sin. And sometimes even when I just think about sinning. It's accusatory. And here's what you need to know. Toxic shame is always from the enemy. Always. Always. The enemy wants to destroy me, and he starts with the idea that God could not possibly love me. And so here's the gospel truth. The creator, the God of the Bible, the real one, never, ever talks that way. Never. He's a father. God's heart is always for the broken. Always. It's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Romans 2, 4. Toxic shame leverages my failures to prevent my acceptance. And that's not of God. And so I want to encourage you to recognize that when it's come. That's toxic shame. Second kind of shame in here is guilt. Guilt. Toxic shame and then guilt. Guilt is something that I feel. This may not be from the enemy, but it's definitely something that I produce in myself. Guilt is what happens to me when I discover that my sin was not worth it. When the lights go on and I go, oh, gosh, what a boneheaded move that was. You idiot. (laughs) That's guilt speaking up. And probably the most important distinction is guilt is not tied to my identity. It is tied to my action. The moment it crosses the line from action to identity, that's where the enemy gets in the driver's seats. That's an important distinction because where toxic shame tells you you're not worth it, guilt tells me that wasn't worth it. See the difference? It's very important. I can look objectively at my action, sometimes stupid things that I do. I can look at it objectively and see it through the lens of a redeemed yet still rebellious heart. Guilt is a real experience of me, a saved man, or you going, that just wasn't worth it. Which leads to the third type of shame. you got toxic shame, guilt, and then this last one is conviction. Conviction. Conviction is what Paul calls godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Conviction is not from the enemy. It's actually the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians. And so as tough as it is, we should welcome conviction into our lives. This is a good thing. Conviction ought to be the normal experience in the life of a tender-hearted Christ follower as we feel the gentle rebuke of the Holy Spirit. A few key things about conviction. First, conviction happens after I sin. Second, conviction helps me feel the weight of my sin so I don't repeat it. It's teaching me something, which is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Third, conviction is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life, inviting me, calling me, drawing me to something better than whatever that was. Okay, so that's the three. Toxic shame, guilt, and conviction. So here's how to tell the distinction and how to get unstuck. Whenever that thing comes up in you and you hear that whisper and you feel that flame and you want to bury your head, here's the question you have to ask. Is this voice that I'm hearing accusing me 
or loving me? It's a simple question, and it's a very hard question. Is this voice that I'm hearing accusing me or loving me? Because of Christ, your heavenly Father will never accuse you if you're in Christ. He sees his condemnation, not yours. Because of Christ, your heavenly Father will never condemn you. Because of Christ, your heavenly Father will never speak shame to you. Because of Christ, your heavenly Father will only ever always speak love to you. It's his goodness that brings us to repentance, Romans 2.4. But what happens when toxic shame is all that we can hear? Because I know some of you are in that spot, just statistically. Here's skill number two. Run to the shelter verses. Run to shelter verses. Here's what I mean. When I was 18, um, God got a hold of my heart in a way that he hadn't before. And I'm not going to go too deep into it right now, but I was reading God's word like I never had. I, I was praying like I never had. And I found myself having to confront choices in my past that led me to the place that I was. And when I was confronting those choices and thinking these things through and trying to retread paths and going like, what, what, what was that about back there? Why did I do that? Why did I act that way? I, expect, I experienced something that I hadn't expected. I experienced attack like I had never experienced before. And it was like the enemy was just like raining down and going like, no, you're never going to get out from this, buddy. No, nope, never going to happen. Never going to happen. And so I started collecting what I call shelter verses. These are verses that God has used in my life over the years to provide shelter from a storm. And so when shame starts raining down, these are the verses that I run to. They're like a hiding place. And so um, for the sake of time, I'm going to share four with you. And I encourage you as I do, just like cultivate your own shelter verses. Here's one. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Oh my gosh, what a good verse. If anyone is in Christ, behold, the old is gone, the new has come. What a beautiful verse to take shelter in. What that, the reason that verse is so dear to me is it tells me how powerful shame can be, but also how powerless shame can be when I hold it up to the light of the gospel. And be like, yeah, that was who Brandon was, but Jesus changed me. Praise God. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Here's another one for you. I love this one. This is Micah chapter 7, 18 through 19. I'm going to read this one because this is so good. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, I mean forgiving sin? Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will again tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's Micah chapter 7, 18 and 19. I love this one because it talks about who God is. He pardons iniquity, passes over transgression. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. Hear me. Some of you need to hear this. God loves to love you. It brings him joy to give you his robe and to put a ring on your finger, to give you his best, which happens to be his son. And then he evokes this beautiful image where he says your sins are at the bottom of the ocean. That means they're gone, they're dealt with, they're buried, they're dealt with, and that's what Jesus does. Jeremiah 31, here's another one. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, says this, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a great idea that is. God's forgetful? What is that about? God's forgetfulness, unlike my forgetfulness, is a willful choice to prefer Jesus' sacrifice over my sacrifice. That's what that is. God's going, I'm going to look on him and not on you. I'm going to forget you because I see him. And so shame is a little bit like, why am I trying to 
call to God's memory something that he's already chosen to forget. Who do I think I am? Last one, and then we'll move on. Galatians 2.20. Oh, gosh, this is a good one. Paul says this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, yet Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul means in that verse is he says, when Christ died, I was so close to him that in a sense, that was my death too. Isn't that beautiful? All that I was is hidden in everything that he is. But before we get to this third skill, there's, there's something we got to get at here. So like, when it comes to these shelter verses or any other shelter verses, you got to ask yourself, well, how come it doesn't feel that way? Because <laughs> there's this really big gap between what I know to be true and what I feel to be true. So how do you close the gap? Here's my trick, and maybe this will work for you. When I come to those verses and other verses, I take out the first person pronoun, like I, and I put my name in there. I gospel my heart with grammar. That's me. So it sounds like this. I read the verse again. It says, Brandon has been crucified with Christ. Brandon no longer lives, but Christ lives in Brandon. The life that Brandon lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loves him and gave himself for him. And it's not like magic or mantra, but like when I hear myself say that, it just clicks. I don't know why. But that's just me. So, learn the difference between God's voice and the enemy's voice. Run to the shelter verses. And then three, hide shame in the right place. Hide your shame in the right place. Everybody in this room has something in common. And everybody watching online, we have something in common. Everybody anywhere has something in common. We try to hide our shame. Also, we're really lousy at it. <laughs> we try and hide our shame. The only question is how? Where do you hide it? What do you do? Another one of my favorite writers, a guy named John Bloom, puts it like this. This is a long quote, but I want to read it to you because it's pretty beautiful. He says, we hide in our homes or away from our homes. We hide in our rooms and in our offices. We hide in our housework, our yard work, and our garage puttering. We hide behind computers and phones and newspapers and magazines. We hide behind earbuds and Netflix and ESPN. We hide behind fashion facades, education facades, career facades, Facebook facades, and pulpit facades. We hide in busyness and procrastination. We hide in outright lies or diversionary conversation. We hide behind sullenness and humor. We hide behind bravado and timidity. We hide in extroversion and introversion. And that may sound cynical to you because you're going like, what, life is just one big facade? But I think he hits the nail on the head because he continues. Here's what he says. Just because we hide our shame in the wrong places doesn't mean that our instinct to hide it is completely wrong. It isn't. We need a place to hide, but we need to hide it in the right place. And for this, I want to bring it back really to where we started. Remember what the religious elite charged Jesus with in the beginning of this whole scene. This man eats with sinners. You want to know something? They're not wrong. He did. And praise God, he still does. Jesus still wants to eat with sinners. Jesus will never get tired of eating with sinners. It's who he is. Our Father's heart bends toward mercy. It's what Jesus is about. Yeah, he ate with sinners. And he wants to today. We're going to close and sing a song in just a second, but I want to give you another verse. This comes out of Psalm 32. Looking for a hiding place. Here's what this says. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now listen to this. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. It means like when I tried to stuff it, when I tried to avoid it, when I tried to not bring it up. When that was me, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up in the heat of summer. Because you're not meant to live that way. (laughs) When I acknowledged my sin to you, and didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Doesn't that sound like the Father in Luke 15? Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Spoiler alert, that's today. If you've never asked for forgiveness, God wants to be found of you today. You are a hiding place for me. Hide your shame in the right place. This is what Jesus wants. You take all that stuff that's in your past and you plunge it underneath the flood of Jesus' blood. That's why he came. And so prodigals could come home, lost people could be found, and so dead people can be brought back to life. This is our God. Let me pray. Father, again, we just say thank you. There's so much to thank you for. Thinking about your heart, how you never stopped loving us even when we don't deserve it. How you always pushed forward when we couldn't imagine that you could possibly love us. All the times that we blow it and you still say welcome home. You never take the welcome mat out from your door. Father, I pray for those in here right now who are scared of their shame. God, I pray that by your spirit you would move in their life and they would seek your forgiveness today so they can live in the freedom that you are so willing to give. Father, we think how wonderful your love is for us. We can't pay you back. We can't even start. And so we just say, here's our lives. We just want to be with you. Help us to worship you in this moment, Father, to rest in your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.